Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that uh, for so many things. Um, you've blessed us beyond our capacity to grasp the significance, and this week we will take intentional time away to acknowledge the goodness that we enjoy from your hands and within this land, and we, uh, we pray that it will be meaningful and beyond just a holiday celebration but from our hearts as your redeemed people acknowledging the great debt that we have that you have satisfied through your son Jesus. Help us as we walk through this stuff today and uh, those things that are not essential that I end up saying, would you just sweep them out of people's minds and help lock those things that are important into, um, into our hearts and minds. We give this time to you and ask that your spirit would direct our thinking and discussion in Jesus' name. Amen. I was last up here in front doing my assignment several weeks ago. At the time, I told you uh, in greater detail than you may have wanted to hear of, of my level of stress in tackling the kind of topic that I had last time. Uh, is it reasonable to believe in God? Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a really huge thing that uh, requires a very thoughtful approach. And I, I felt out of my depth, and I told you that, and I apologize to you for that. Marilyn was gone that weekend, and, uh, she, um, but she watched the presentation, uh, which you can do, as you probably know, on, from Grace's website, and uh, she said, well, it was pretty good. Uh, don't apologize. So I just want to tell you today, I'm really sorry for having apologized so much. <laughs> but I'm in the same boat today. Um, social justice and the gospel. I walked in this room, and somebody that was here ahead of me said, define social justice. I thought, here we go. And, uh, of course, I'm sure you would recognize that uh, there are probably a thousand different approaches or definitions that you would um, surface if you did the research and asked the questions of many kinds of people. Um, why is it a part of a study like this series on apologetics? Well, because um, biblical truth impacts our society in certain ways through Christians and even non-Christians whom God chooses to use, as he has clearly done throughout all of biblical history. Uh, let me just make a couple of personal comments about how we came, Marilyn and I came to be interested in these things. Uh, um, in a very personal way, we became aware of a kind of a new movement within the, the Christian world or the um, Christendom in general, um, there's a movement called Progressive Christianity that uh, includes in its worldview um, a strong emphasis on social justice, although in certain circles it would appear to us as uh, um, observers that the gospel is a casualty in many cases. Let me just uh, give you, and, and we, we, we don't have PowerPoint. 
Still working on it. Okay. I'm going to read some, some quotes, and, and uh, if we don't get anything up and running, I, I would be willing to uh, put a sheet of paper out. If you really want these quotes in print, I can print them off for you and get them to you if you'd leave your name and put them in your church mailbox or email them to you or whatever. Um, but from the Center for Progressive Christianity's own website, homepage, um, they say this, by calling ourselves progressive, we mean we are Christians who recognize the faithfulness of other people who have other names for the way to God's realm and acknowledge that their ways are true for them as our ways are true for us. That's just basic relativism. Um, Wikipedia, that great font of wisdom, uh, defines progressive Christianity as characterized by a willingness to question tradition, acceptance of human diversity, a strong emphasis on social justice, and care for the poor and the oppressed, and environmental stewardship of the earth. There are obviously competing viewpoints here, not all of which we would describe as uh, central to the historic Orthodox Christianity and the gospel. And so I just am going to help you investigate a little bit uh, those differences. So there's a debate today in Christian circles, in churchdom, about uh, where the role social justice plays, the level of responsibility we have, where it fits within the, the, the groupings of things that we are responsible for as followers of Christ. Um, one of the people I enjoy reading is a man named Timothy Keller. He wrote a little book called Generous Justice, and he gives a little background. I'm going to pick a few things from him and some other sources and just describe the background to, to the debate that we have today. Uh, it's been a contentious journey as the church has tried in the last hundred years, especially, to find its way among the apparently competing values of social justice and evangelism. Social redemption versus soul redemption. In the early 20th century, about a hundred years ago, the American church divided between the liberal mainline denominations that stressed social justice and the fundamentalist churches that emphasized evangelism, personal salvation. One of the founders of the social gospel movement uh, was a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a German Baptist minister in New York City in the 1880s. And his experience in the poor, woohoo! Okay, uh, now you can go to the second slide, and uh, that's the one I just read. Um, he uh, had ministries in the poorer parts of the city, and it led him to question the traditional evangelistic approach, which took pains to save people's souls, but did nothing about the social systems that kept them locked into poverty. And so he, he began to stress social justice in his ministry, uh, ministering, in his words, to both soul and body. So far, so good. Uh, but with him, at least, and his movement, in, in tandem with that movement came a shift in theology. And so Rauschenbusch rejected the historical teachings of Scripture and the atonement, and he taught that Jesus did not need to satisfy the justice of God, and therefore he died only to be an example of unselfishness. Well, 
Of course, elements of Christianity, the more fundamental, uh, reacted to that, and so that really led to to a, a strong reaction. It led to much of Orthodox Christianity coming to believe then that doing justice is inextricably linked with the loss of sound biblical doctrine. It just that's what happened there, and so that was kind of the automatic assumption that any emphasis on social justice would result in the loss of sound doctrine. After World War II, there was a very similar conversation to what we're having today uh, concerning social justice and what some called a new evangelicalism developed that tried to strike a balance between the fundamentalism of the day and Protestant liberalism. The new evangelicals believed that fundamentalism brought disrepute on the gospel by denying any kind of social responsibility. At the same time, though, they faulted the Protestant liberals for transforming the gospel into a social gospel and consequently abandoning it. Um, part of this new evangelicalism resulted in the, the founding and I think it was 1942, of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, our FEC denomination is, is a member of the NAE. And uh, a very interesting booklet that the NAE has uh, put out is, is called For the Health of the Nation, and it addresses some of these social gospel issues. Um, so the debate they had... In the, in the wake of, during and in the wake of the Second World War is, is really the same debate that we're having today. Um, in, in the introduction, and next slide please, Jeff, uh, to Keller's book, Generous Justice, he says that one of the groups that he's addressing that he had in mind when he wrote this book, Generous Justice, are younger evangelicals who have expanded their mission to include social justice along with evangelism. Many of them have not only turned away from older forms of ministry, but also from traditional evangelical doctrines of Jesus' substitutionary atonement and of justification by faith alone, which are seen as too individualistic. These authors usually argue, these progressive Christianity-type authors, usually argue that changes in theological emphasis or perhaps outright changes in theological doctrine are necessary if the church is going to be more engaged in social justice. So, all of this forces us to ask ourselves and answer the question, to what degree should the church be involved or not involved in the issues of the day, especially in terms of social justice. So this is a, this is a lively debate today uh, it's dynamic, it's ongoing, it's growing, it uh, takes new forms. Um, let me just give you an observation, next slide, uh, uh, of a comment that John Stott made. Uh, the evangelical stereotype has been to spiritualize the gospel and deny its social implications, while the ecumenical stereotype has been to politicize it and deny its offer of salvation to sinners. This polarization has been a disaster, in his view. A year ago, this last summer, the summer of 2018, uh, there was a new round in the battle that was kicked off. 
under the leadership of uh, Pastor John MacArthur of the Grace Community Church in California. I forget what city they're in. Um, no connection to Grace Community Church here, uh, just a kind of a coincidence that we chose the same names. Um, he and a group of evangelical church leaders released a document that they called the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. It's sometimes called the Dallas Statement because they put it together in a coffee shop in Dallas. Now, it took a long time for them to develop it, but they got it. And, and more than at this, the last numbers I've seen, more than 11,000 pastors and theologians have signed the statement. You can sign it. If you go online, it gives you an opportunity to put your name in with those who agree. Let me, let me uh, next slide, uh, sh give you the opening paragraph of this Dallas statement. In view of questionable sociological, psychological, and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads into Christ's church, we wish to clarify certain key Christian doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word. Clarity on these issues will fortify believers and churches to withstand an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel, misrepresent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I forgot to do something. There's a basket there. Would you mind, now here's what this is. I'm, I want you to pass this around. There are um, a dozen or so scriptures that I'd like to have us read in a little bit, and it's coming up pretty soon. So uh, go ahead and start. If, if you would like to, and if you don't want to, just pass it on. But take one of those slips, find the place, be prepared to stand up and read clearly and loudly so even the camera microphone can, can pick it up, and, uh, and we'll go through some, some specific scriptures. Anyway, back to uh, the, the Dallas Statement. Um, in, in the 14 sections of the statement, it addresses those cultural narratives that, in its words, are currently undermining scriptures in the areas of race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, and human sexuality. And it argues that, that the church is facing a very secular threat, um, the evangelical church, in these areas, which I think most of us would agree. Um, but... MacArthur and those who co-authored this um, are basically warning that, quote, lectures on social issues in the church and, quote, activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel. And so they're taking a pretty strong out here um, a approach to these things. And and so this, this statement, the release of this statement, I'm, MacArthur's an international figure, he's widely known, and, and uh, so it, it hit the scene of this debate like a kind of a bombshell, like a bomb, and it sparked huge debate and controversy. And uh, um, one of the people that, that I appreciate uh, is, is Albert Moeller. You, you all, most of you know who Albert Muller is. He's uh, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he has a, a, a blog and uh, a podcast called The Daily Briefing. It's amazing that he puts this thing together every day in which he analyzes current events from the perspective of a Christian evangelical worldview. And if you've never 
use that as a resource to kind of help you get a grasp on uh, a perspective from a Christian theology viewpoint. This would be a really good thing for you. Um, he, uh, he refused to sign the document um, for two reasons. First of all, he said that essentially while he is fully committed to sound evangelical doctrine, he was not comfortable with the way some of the statements read. And secondly, he felt that the statement ignored the reality of some of the true injustices in our culture and the ways that they could be impacted by the gospel. Mueller was most concerned about how this statement spoke about racism. And so this caused a huge explosion on the theological scene, and pieces of de debris are still raining down from the sky or a, a year and a half later. Um, next slide, please. One thing has become clear from this debate. This is a statement by Tom Askell, a Southern Baptist pastor in Florida. How challenging it can be for Christians who agree on the inerrancy of Scripture and the exclusivity of the gospel to settle on a common strategy for confronting error in the culture. And so my great hope is that we will resolve all of that for the world today in here. We won't, but I want you to know what's going on and what some of the implications are. Now, one reality in the middle of this discussion about MacArthur and his cronies' uh, um, statement is that MacArthur is combative by nature and has a confrontational style that tends to trigger resistance um, to what he says. There are areas where, where I have um, just been really annoyed and irritated at what he does and says. Um, I read the statement, though, in its entirety the other day, and apart from one or two things that Mueller points out, it is really, I thought, personal opinion, well done, needs to be said, and upholds strong uh, biblical theology. Um, so, in some areas, I don't like MacArthur, but I, I like what he has done here. Uh, and maybe it could have t uh, benefited from a little extra wordsmithing and, and so on, but uh, it, it was quite a deal. All right, now let's just look at the whole issue of, of what does the Bible say about social justice. And so I, I have not chosen every statement, of course, from the Scriptures, but there's a list of those. And if you picked up Amos 5, 21 through 24... Um, I think it would be better if you, if you wouldn't mind, stand and read it clearly and loudly and, uh, so that it can be, uh, be heard. Thank you, Brian. Amos 5, 21. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Thank you. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord is waiting to show you mercy, and is rising up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God. 
All who wait patiently for him are happy. Thank you. Next one, Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Thank you. Next one, Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Okay. Let's just keep going. Psalm 111. Seven. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. Okay. Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek an audience with a ruler, but it is from the Lord that man is justice. Isaiah 61, 8. Thank you. Just a, a, a three verses from the Good Samaritan parable, um, mostly in the interest of time, it'd be worth reading it all, but let's do Luke 10, 25 to 27. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and, and we'll just let those verses serve as the introduction to a story that you know of, of, uh, of how the Samaritan ministered to the real physical needs of the man who'd been robbed and beaten. Zechariah 7, 8 through 14, a little longer passage. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty administered through justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Your hearts do not think people of each other. But they refused to pay attention, stubbornly turned their backs, and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as much and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty has sent by his spirit through the earth of So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not. Thank you. Isaiah fifty eight six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free? And break every yoke. Thank you. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what the Lord will require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you. James 1.27. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Thank you. Finally, Luke 4, 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his 
stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you. I mean, just on the face of it, it's obvious, I would think, or may I ask it as a question, how could anyone who believes and worships God and follows Christ uh, not recognize from these passages that there is some level of responsibility that we have to um, impact the people around us who are in various kinds of need? Um, I think it's it's very clear, and, and of course, these are only representative scriptures. There are many more. Let's take a little little bit of a look at, at how has this played out in history. I think, Jeff, maybe you addressed this uh, in your last class to some extent or mentioned some of these things. Um, so let's remind ourselves that a concern for the injustices that are in a given culture and the physical needs of people have long been a part of the church's vision of its mission. And so here are a couple of examples. If you go back to the 5th and 6th centuries, it was Christians who brought legal protection to the children of the Roman Empire. Ulrich Zwingli, one of the reformers, um, a contemporary of Luther and Calvin, broke with the Roman Catholic Church and persuaded the Council of Zurich to turn several monasteries into orphanages in the name of Christ. George Whitfield, um, great evangelist of the 18th century, devoted a large portion of his income to the development of orphanages in colonial Georgia. Um, William Wilberforce. You all see the movie Amazing Grace? Isn't that where that story is told? Um, and and uh, the book by Eric Metaxas is incredible uh, that you really ought to read. Anyway, uh, Wilberforce struggled for years in the British Parliament to begin the modern movement to abolish slavery. He was successful. English missionary William Carey um, was responsible for outlawing the centuries-old practice of burning widows in India. When their husbands died, the widows were put on the funeral fire with him. Later in the 1800s, Lord Shaftesbury, a Christian statesman, led the fight against child labor practices and fought to improve treatment of the mentally ill in Great Britain. It's often forgotten that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher built at least 17 homes for elderly widows and an orphanage for hundreds of children of all races and backgrounds. Eventually, Spurgeon started and or presided and occasionally single-handedly funded <coughs> at least 66 ministry organizations, most of which served in the poorer parts of London. Think about organizations that, uh, um, like Salvation Army, YMCA, Red Cross, Almost all hospitals were founded by Christian organizations or church bodies. 
Every nursing home in the Newton area is established by a church body. Um, next slide, please. Uh, Donald Whitney wrote a book, Ten Questions to D Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, included this quote, Whenever, wherever a beachhead for the gospel of Jesus Christ has been established, medicine, education, and relief for the poor have followed. Whether the need is hunger, lack of drinking water, illiteracy, sickness, homelessness, or anything else that causes misery, Christians have been at the forefront of caring for the needs of the world. Christianity is a religion of concern for others. We have a local homeless shelter that is specifically, um, what's the best word? It, it's a Christian organization. Uh, Jeff happens to be Grace's coordinator for volunteers there. Marilyn and I have served there a number of times. Um, uh, what, what's it called? What's the name? New Hope. New Hope, New Hope Shelter. It's, it's not just a homeless shelter. It's, it's an intent to bring the love of, of Christ to people in that type of need. This type of thing isn't just a component of New Testament Christianity. It's been a part of God's plan for his people since Old Testament times, as we noted earlier in all these passages that we read. However, Sometimes Christians have gotten it wrong um, or haven't adequately addressed legitimate things. Uh, Albert Muller, again, in a chapel address at the seminary, was talking about his belief that racism is still an urgent issue and should be one for Christians to take some responsibility for. He said, I can't associate with any assertion that we do not have a massive problem. He sort of felt that MacArthur's statement was whitewashing the reality of the problem in the society and in the church with claims of racial superiority and with the fact that remnants and ongoing manifestations of those claims of white racial superiority continue. Um, <laughs> Muller has an interesting perspective on this. The remnants of white racial superiority surround Moeller every day. Here's what he said. I am the president of a seminary established by slaveholders as part of a convention established to allow slaveholders to continue to send missionaries and be slaveholders. Uh, those are the roots of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so all of this reminds us of our vulnerability to two extremes. Uh, evangelical Christians, I think, are vulnerable on two fronts. It's very easy for us to overstress, in this regard, our vertical relationship with God. In our commitment to fulfill the gospel mandate to evangelize, we hide behind it and avoid our biblical responsibility to help achieve any kind of social justice in the here and now. In other words, it's all God and Jesus, no good works. I mean, that's an extreme. None of you are like that, I know. The other extreme is overstressing our horizontal relationship with our fellow humans and the culture in which we live and become so focused, focused on social justice issues that we neglect the gospel mandate to help bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ and it becomes all good works, no God, no Jesus. So that's, uh, that's the dilemma. That's the, the range that we need to decide as followers of Jesus where we are, when we live in this world, in this country, in its history. What's our responsibility? Where do we come down? I think as individual Christians, even we have to decide 
And I think, I, I feel, because I know in my own heart and mind, I have long tended to hide behind the evangelism mandate um, and not take some responsibility for bringing God's truth and love to the and compassion to the to the world and the, the people and the and the structures and issues around me around us. All right, let's uh, on your outline. I've got something called uh, current distortions of social justice. This is these are mostly my opinions, and uh, you you will take them as such. But let's talk about them. When the vision of social justice. When the vision is that a radically transformed society should be brought into existence according to models of that society that are inspired by non-biblical ideologies, social justice has been hijacked from its biblical foundations to serve other ends. I may need to say that again. I'm not even sure exactly what I just said. But... (laughs) There are those people or organizations that have a vision of social justice to achieve a certain kind of a society that is inspired by non-biblical ideologies. Okay? If that happens, or in those places where that happens, then social justice as a biblical model and a biblical idea has been hijacked to serve other ends. I think that's happening, or the push is on to make that happening. Um, here's where I um, may, I don't know, I won't get into trouble. You're too nice to give me trouble. But um, it is the opinion of many, I happen to believe it, that one of the strongest underpinnings to much of today's secular social justice movement is a Marxist philosophical approach to culture. Um, I came across a an article on the church leaders website. Next slide, please. This is uh, this is a comment actually by Moeller again. I'm over Moellerizing this Sunday school class maybe, but uh, he's got good stuff to say. He's a very, very careful thinker. Uh, the justice that is presently being called for in broader culture is rooted in what's basically a Marxist source. Marxist theory can be boiled down to identifying all the structures of authority and of order in society as repressive. Under this theory's influence, social justice means tearing down all of those institutions, tearing down all of those orders, tearing down all of those authorities. This leads to anarchy. This view of social justice does not fit with the Bible's view of social justice, which we read about all throughout the Old and New Testaments. Next slide. Here's just a couple of comments on social justice. Where God's people are, there must be an increasing realization of the justice of God in the society of which they are a part. Put another way, if... Uh, If God's people are behaving like God's people and obeying the the instructions of God's word, there will be a consequential positive effect on society. People will be seen as equal in the eyes of God. The widow and orphan will be cared for, and restitution will be made for those mistreated, as the Bible instructs. I'm not sure that that means racial reparations, as we're hearing promoted by some of our presidential candidates. I'm going to give you a... A quick refresher on Marxism. Um, 
it's 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 interesting to to me to us that this book that we've plugged a couple of times um, called Mama Bear Apologetics uh, is, is it's much broader than the title suggests, but but uh, the authors deal with some of this um, as they warn about what they see happening in our culture. Now, you might very well ask, so what's a isn't communism and all that a thing of the past? You know, the Berlin Wall is down, the USSR is gone. Have we learned nothing about the errors and evils of Marxism? Isn't Venezuela learning this lesson like right now? Well, the answer is no. It's not learning the lesson. Next slide. Marxism, uh, uh, boy, I'm really out of my depth here, but let me tell you what I, what I think. Marxism is a broad field of thought. Um, it's not a monolithic belief system. Marxism has all kinds of stripes and colors, and they disagree with each other. But it's a philosophical and economic theory developed by Karl Marx. Change the environment, the social structures, give people everything they need, they'll all be noble and work hard for the benefit of society. That's the ideal. What it doesn't do philosophically, theologically, is account for the evil in our own souls. Socialism, the general idea of socialism, is that the state, the centralized government, is in control of all production and distribution of goods and services, and it makes all the decisions regarding com uh, commerce. That's the general idea of socialism. Communism is the utopian belief that all power can be put back into the hands of the working class and they will govern themselves. No gods, no masters, no more classes of people. Uh, communism uh, inevitably is unapologetically atheistic. Um, those utopian dreams have given us people like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Castro. Especially Stalin and Mao, um, tens of millions of people that they put to death because they didn't go along with the flow. Um, so I, I'm going to survey the agenda, next slide, of, of much of the contemporary social justice movement. I'm not saying the Christian social justice responsibilities, but the contemporary, culture-wide. Uh, but some of this is leaking into Christian social justice teaching. Uh, here, here's the strategy. First, reject innate sin. That's, that's what, I mean, there, there's no such thing. Now, there is innate evil in our society, but it's in, in their view, in the economic and social systems, including capitalism, which is synonymous with Oppression. Second strategy is to recognize oppression. Marxists believe the history of man is the history of oppressors who are protected by the system, whether that's capitalism, traditional family, religion. Um, third strategy, demonize the wealthy. The assumption is that wealthy people could only get that wealthy by exploiting the workers under them. And then emphasize justice and equality. And this takes the form of... of uh, noting every difference between people. And it, it takes perceived differences between people and just assumes or deems these to be inequalities or injustice. Uh, 
If there is any difference in economic status between two people or two classes, then that is automatically oppression or injustice. If there are any differences between male and female, that's gender injustice. If a man can walk away from a pregnancy but a woman can't, then we need to have reproductive justice. If there are any differences between black, white, Latino, Asian, or Native American cultures, those are racial injustices. I'm not, we're not saying, I'm not saying there are no injustices there, but um, that's different from differences. Uh, in, in the uh, Yale-Harvard football game yesterday, a group of demonstrators uh, took the field, delayed the, at halftime, delayed the game for a half an hour and uh, unfurled a huge banner uh, talking about climate injustice. Now, in this uh, list of the agenda of some of the contemporary social justice movement, especially it's more radical, and do you see anything familiar there? You hearing any of this stuff? Sure you are. Now, let me, let me note, have you note well, this, what I've been saying, does not minimize the reality of systemic racism in America uh, it does not excuse it. It does not justify any Christian's refusal to take any responsibility for it in themselves or even in the society. There is oppression, greed, and injustice in our society systems. The gospel of the Bible does not state as its goal the overturn of a societal order. It does speak at length about impacting the society. Most succinctly in Jesus' statement about you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It has a savory function. It makes things taste better. It is more, makes things more palatable in that regard. I think it brings out uh, the best in a culture. It not only has a savory function, it has a preservative function. It keeps things from decaying. That's our role, our responsibility. So if we are going to, um, let me just stop. I, I've talked, not one of you has said anything except the scripture reading. Give me some thoughts or comments that you, or questions that you may that you may have. If not, we'll just keep rolling. I don't know how much material I have. I have more, and I don't know how it's going to work out with the clock. I have no idea. Yes? Actually, this is a prompt to talk some more. Uh, <laughs> liberation theology is something that uh, I, I believe is a, uh, you know, Marxism, socialism is very high on the order of things as far as uh, conceptualizing it. But I see liberation theology as a lower tier thing that can affect us in the church uh, or in the university and, and I also had a, a two year experience with it in the Philippines, the battlefields of the Philippines where, uh, well I'll just give one example and then I'll, I'll let you run with it, but I, I'd like you to elaborate. We captured a terrorist who was going to uh, set a bomb for us. And uh, under interrogation, I learned later his story. And this 
after hearing this story, I could no longer hate these people. There was a compassion there. I felt sorry for them. We had to stop what they were doing. But he, he said, in effect, Amelda Marcos has 2,000 pairs of shoes. He said, my mother was barefoot all of her life and died because we couldn't afford some small medicine when she had an infection. And he said, then a NPA, New People's Army recruiter, uh, associated with a certain church, came through and taught me about liberation theology and how Jesus wanted me to set such injustices straight and gave me a rifle and taught me how to make bombs. And that's how he got there. It's a very sad story. Uh, this, this poor kid, he was a kid, he was 16 years old. And, um, but these recruiters, motivators, whatever you want to call them, uh, they prey upon these sad stories and these tragic injustices which are in the world. And uh, they're taking advantage of the ignorance and or the circumstances of these children all over the world and desperation and turning them into terrorists. And I, I have seen that in the, on the battlefield. And I've seen it in the universities, and just last night, and, and I just don't want to sing about the Catholic Church, but there's many other churches who are involved in it. But the Pope himself, the Pope himself, declares himself to be a liberation theologian. And so the church writ large has, I believe, a huge undertaking in confronting this. Yes, and of course I'm not going to be able to repeat all that for viewers back home, but uh, in, in comments about liberation theology, and, and this is going to be over simplistic, but basically uh, I understand liberation theology be that approach that the, the goal of the gospel, uh, the gospel is the good news that a society can be liberated from its oppression. Um, and, and so that becomes the, the primary, by any means necessary, uh, that be, and then those of you in the society, even if it's messy at the beginning, you'll thank us afterward for having straightened it out. And I don't want to be too too simplistic because I don't understand it all that well. But you know, and and that is in opposition to what we most of us here believe is the gospel, and the primary goal is the transformation of the individual through the grace of God and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and then that transforms a society from the inside out. But liberation theology is a piece, is, is another example of this kind of um, social justice, in my view, gone off the rails into an extreme place that, uh, that does not show up in the scriptures. Um, yeah, it's hard to, that, that's a perfect example, I think, of that kind of, of approach. And again, I and we and MacArthur in the statement and so on are not saying that there are not injustices. That God intends his truth, his people to bear upon. Um, the question is in the tactics and the emphasis in what you exclude or include and so on. And some of that will hopefully work out here yet. Yes? I, I think it's one of those typical, ends, do the ends justify the means in, in circumstances like that? And, <clears throat> and that's not just an issue in the Philippines. You see, like abortion clinics, 
and you'll get some that will say, well, if we go blow up the abortion clinic, then they can't do the abortions. And so it, it becomes one of those challenges, and I think there is a challenge of saying, uh, and, and you said it, which is there's, you know, you can get extremes on either end of social justice. Where do you get in the middle where it's still about Jesus? And, and I think it comes down to things like what Paul talks about, I'll be all things to all people, but he's not going to sin in that process. Right. And, and I think there's a line there that says, you know, so the abortion clinic, do we want them doing that? No. So what's the answer to that? Is it to go blow it up and kill all the abortion doctors? Well, no. Why? Because it's sin. And so that's, but those are, that is, I think, even in our society, not just in the Philippines, that, that's where those challenges come up. You have very, you know, devout people that are trying to solve a problem, but um, they don't know how, or they're not willing to be patient with it, or whatever, and so that, that is a line, I think, that, is, and it's not just that extreme either. I think there are circumstances in our everyday lives where we begin to question because I want this to occur so badly, am I willing to do X in order to achieve Y, mm -hmm. even though X is not right? And I think that happens a lot. Yeah, and, and, and where there are competing values, you know, the value of stopping abortion, uh, it competes with the value of respect for human life, and, uh, you know, and, and we, we uh, you're pointing out that we tend, some tend to take an end just, whatever, means is necessary, the end will justify that. And of course, that is not supported scripturally. Okay, uh, let, let's move on. The, the, if there is such a thing as a biblically consistent um, Old and New Testament uh, responsibility given to God's people to achieve some kind or to work in some respect for a social justice, what is the foundation for that? Well, we're going to look at a, at a few things that, that uh, are maybe part of that. Um, the first area I, I did specify these. First area, the first foundation stone of, of a biblical social justice is our own justification. Um, I don't know how many of you are um, signed up with Right Now Media. Uh, Grace Community Church has an agreement with them, and any of you can sign up for rights to, to access any teaching resource on Right Now Media. It's a fantastic thing. If you haven't done it, you really should. And you would just, I don't know, you just need to contact the church office and get whatever uh, they will give you to. Uh, and it's got kids' stuff and grandkids' stuff, and it, it's one of the, the little... Um, teaching sessions that I, I, I was actually toying with playing part of for you this morning, a video, but uh, decided not to, is again from uh, Timothy Keller, and, and it's a generous justice, sort of based on part of what his book is all about by that name. Um, if you go to Right Now Media conference sessions and then look up generous justice, you'll see that. Social justice, here's the point he makes, and, and I agree with him on this. Social justice initiatives and responsibility on our part are a consequence of justification, not its cause. This is not how we get into favor with God by doing great things in the world. I mean, that's simple gospel, biblical gospel. When we can see that before God, we are all dead, we are all bankrupt, 
and that our coming to spiritual life and a relationship with God is totally on the merits of another, Jesus, if, if we really internalize that reality, then, then we will never be able to look at someone and think, feel, consciously or unconsciously, that they are beneath us. Because we're there too. We're all on the same level. Or inferior to us. And we will never withhold from others because we were or are as needy as they in every respect. So our own justification should shape how we see other people. The second foundation stone is something that I'm calling God's robust mercy. There's an interesting story in the current Christianity Today magazine uh, by Mark Golly. Galley? Golly. Jeff doesn't know. If Jeff doesn't know, nobody knows. Uh, robust mercy. He uses that term. And he tells the story of the conviction. Some of you may have followed this in the news. Last month, a woman in Dallas, um, a former police officer, a white former police officer named uh, Amber Geiger, uh, came home. She entered the wrong apartment, thought she was being invaded, and shot the guy. He was in his own apartment, actually, as it turns out. And his name was Botham Jean. And he died. And uh, she was convicted of murder, and she was given 10 years. Uh, in the courtroom, at the sentencing, Botham's brother, Brant, asked to make a, uh, a statement, and he offered forgiveness. He looked right at Amber Geiger, and he said, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. He went over and gave her a hug. And millions of people have responded to that, and some of them not so, not so uh, uh, positively saying, in effect, well, if, if he forgives that easily, then all the issues that led to that are swept under the rug, you know, and it, he sh shouldn't have done that. It minimizes the gravity of what happened. Um, and and that, uh, that, that act on, on his brother's part <clears throat> is what Gali calls uh, robust grace. You can, next slide, please. And says, such mercy, just bang, did it, like God does it for us. Such mercy burns more deeply into my soul the need to seek as much justice as one can hope for in this life, just as I pursue righteousness in my personal life. Robust mercy also fills me with a robust hope. Because of the cross, we are sure that both holiness and justice will win in the end, precisely because mercy has already won on Calvary. Um, third foundation stone, Christianity's own roots. Um, in the early, earliest years of Christianity, um, Larry Hurtado wrote a book, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And he goes on to point out that, that uh, they were the most persecuted uh, there were no social benefits from becoming a Christian. Why would somebody become a Christian in those earliest years, especially in the thick of the, the waves of persecution? Well, there are a couple of possible answers that people give. One, uh, people who became Christians then found love and community. But he points out that everybody had community. There were families and there were guilds, community a sense of community was not the issue. Others said, well, Christianity offered miraculous healing. But most of the religions of that day also 
offered miraculous healing. And Hurtado continues that Christianity offered something that could not be found anywhere else. Next slide. And that was simply communing with God, not just having the favor of the gods, but a love relationship with God through the free gift of eternal life. Every other religion, you have to earn, you have to work hard, you have to be a good person. Christianity said, no, no, Christ has gone to the cross and through his sacrifice has procured your salvation. You get forgiveness now. That's what turns you into a person who can be salt. That's where all those values go. That's where the other-oriented ethic comes from. That's where the infinite values of the human soul comes from. And it's noteworthy that the early Christians were the ones who rescued babies that had been thrown out. They were the ones who valued women. They cared for the sick, even those outside their own Christian community. That's how Christianity was born in terms of its early impact. And of course, a a strong foundation stone and perhaps the core uh, foundation stone of a biblical uh, view of or approach to social justice is the statements that Jesus himself made. Uh, Gregory Kukul has written a book called The Rescue, Why Jesus Came. Let's just review his statements. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, John 3.17. Why did he come? To save the world. The Son of Man, Luke 19.10, came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. John 10.17 and 18, I lay down my life so that I may Take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, through the angel, tells Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. To the shepherds, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Zechariah prophesies over his son, the infant, John the Baptist, that that he would go um, prepare the way for the Lord and that he would give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Thirty years later, John the Baptist points at the Lord Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did Jesus come? Primarily, to transform the hearts of people through a new and eternal relationship with the Father through the work that he would do. That's that's the gospel. It's my, our contention that the social justice is an implication of that, a consequence of that, that is not the first part. It's the close second J.D. Greer wrote a book called Gaining by Losing that uh, I think the elders here several years ago worked through together. Uh, J.D. Greer is a pastor of a church that has a strong commitment to serving their community in social causes. They are amazingly active and effective. And he wrote, we serve people whether... Oh, there's a slide for that, sorry. (laughs) We serve people 
whether or not they ever show any interest in the gospel, because that's how Jesus served us. We don't serve to convert. We serve because we are converted. But if what we believe about the gospel is true, we can never be satisfied to put food in people's bellies or education in their minds when their souls are in jeopardy. I'm glad we can put Tom's shoes on people's feet, but I'm also concerned about Tom's soul. Shoes can fix that. Only Shoes can't fix that. Only Jesus can. Um, I appreciate that perspective. Uh, next slide. Here's my final thought. We're going to work this out pretty good time-wise here, unless you guys get really verbal here all of a sudden, which I should give you some opportunity. Two commandments for the price of one. Mark 12, 28. And when the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that, he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? This question appears in three of the Gospels. Jesus answered, the most important, most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I'm sure the guy asking says, got that. That's exactly right. That's the most important one. Let's just go do that. That was a straight answer to what was most important. But then Jesus continues, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. You don't get to choose, right? Isn't that what it's saying? What are you saying? So the most important commandment is twofold. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. If you keep the first without keeping the second, you're not really keeping the first. If you keep the second without keeping the first, you're not keeping the first. So what's more important for Christians? Preaching the gospel or pursuing justice? What's most important for the church? Making disciples or serving the needy in their distress, in James' words? So we all want to know what's, what's the top dog, like the scribe in Mark 12, but Jesus challenges the way we frame the question, and he gives us two commandments for the price of one. So in the final analysis, loving God comes first, which means loving his word, loving his ways, submitting to him, taking the gospel, and every account in the gospel of the, of the three that relate this conversation or one like it, maintains this order, love God, but love your neighbor. And I think it's clear we can't keep the first without keeping the second. When we ask for one commandment, Jesus gives us two. And I think what I want to feel and have you feel is that we will rightly prioritize both of those things. You know, what are some of the ways that average Newtonians, Newtonian Christians like we can, can help achieve social justice? How do we love our neighbor in these ways? You know, and we might just take our last five minutes and think about how can we as a church or as individual Christians impact people around us nationally or more important locally because that's where we work and live mostly. How can we do that? 
And I'm, I'm going to kick it off by saying, I, you know, one of the little things, and this is just one of, of many, and, and by my mentioning it does not prioritize it above others, but this, this uh, um, homeless shelter thing. Um, how often in our, uh, Jeff, in our uh, rotation do you have a little trouble finding enough volunteers? Every time. When our turn comes around, Grace Community Church is a, is a church of six or seven hundred or more people. There shouldn't be any problem. Okay, I, I think we should be ashamed of ourselves in some of these areas. And I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm plugging for my son's responsibility in this area. Maybe a little, but... but <laughs> he, he didn't mind. Uh, but, you know, there, there are a lot of places we can go to be the salt and light. And it isn't just writing a check for a missionary that goes to the other side of the world. I'm struck by uh, the need of when we do respond in these ways to always strive to do it in a Christ-like way for a Christ-like purpose, with Christ's service and gospel and all in mind, because if we don't, we are left with the justice of man, which is always lacking and incomplete, and I'll segue into what brought me around to that thought was, every person who I've ever talked to who has had experience with the court system, or whether they were the victim or the perpetrator, not one was satisfied with their day in court. The court was is never able to redeem, obtain full forgiveness, restitution, punish, <coughs> provide mercy, or anything else to the satisfaction of most people involved on both sides. Uh, so the justice and the efforts of humans is always limited and poisoned at times, incomplete, and only as we serve, whether it's in the courts or the homeless shelter or anywhere else, with a Christ-like spirit can we begin to bring justice and goodness to, to these people. Can I, can, I say something? can I say something about that? Please. Um, in regard to the homeless shelter, and this, I'm just, this is just a plug. I'm just continuing my plug, my dad's plug. But they take zero government dollars because they do not want any restrictions on their ability to, uh, for it to be a Christian ministry and for them to share Christ with the people in their shelter. They... They could have a lot more money on their hands, but they have an integrity to their witness that they want to maintain that I think does what you're talking about, Dave. Um, it, 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 they don't want to shear off one end of that uh, kind of the justice and, and belonging that come from Christ as well as meeting physical needs. We were there last uh, Tuesday evening, and uh, uh, the, they, they have... They require the, the clients to attend a, a session every evening. The one that uh, was going on as we were there at 7 p.m. was uh, bringing um, 
uh, how, how do they put it, Marilyn? Maybe you can help me remember. But it was essentially a, a, a work ethic that is biblically based. Here's why it's important for you to f go find a job, and here are the biblical um, guidelines for how you do that, how you work, why you work, and so on. And and to be able uh, to underscore uh, or illustrate Jeff's point that uh, they don't take government dollars so that they are able to, to do that and not just have a secular approach to, to a legitimate need in our community, especially as the weather gets colder and so on. Um, what were there, 30 or 40 people in the shelter the other night, I think, when we were there? Uh, 40 is about the capacity, and uh, they, they really get totally there, but they get close. Yes. Um, I'm a public school teacher, and I see my job as a mission field every day. And I mean, I can't preach the gospel directly unless kids ask me about it, and it has opened doors for kids to ask me about things. And so I just go in every day, and I love my job. And it's an opportunity for me to share Christ's love with these kids and with my staff. And so I think it's important, too, just in whatever you do, that you're constantly looking for those places that... Salt and light in a very public, secular organization. Another hand. Uh, when my wife and I went to Church of Faith Maronite Church over on Anderson, we were very involved in the homeless shelter. And we started a work day where one Sunday a year we would, you know, have different jobs around the community. And I was in charge. This is when the homeless shelter was at uh, Axdale Hospital. And I was in charge of a group that had to go through all the donations. And by the time I was, oh, I was very angry because we went through a whole room of couches. That I told my wife that I that were donated, I would not let my dog sleep on. <laughs> Mattresses that weren't worth laying on, it, just, it was just junk. And it aggravated me that, you know, I understand people feel like they're giving, but don't use it as a, as a trash dump. You know, these are still people that you're donating to help, and uh, you know, I, and I don't, I'm not very good at articulating stuff. So you're doing pretty good. <laughs> but, uh, I think sometimes we as Christians like to be involved in the background. So we justify, oh, we, I made that donation, so I don't have to go serve. And my wife and I served, and uh, yes, I got burned out. I told my wife, I, you know, we have to kind of step away from it a little bit. But a lot of that is my own Christian feeling. I have, I have no patience for people that... Don't meet your standards. Huh? Don't meet your standards. <laughs> well, I don't want to say meet my standards, but I had a guy get in my face one night, time, one night and tell me, he says, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And I just told him, he says, okay, look where you're at. You know, that, that attitude really bothers me. And, uh, but then on the other hand, God's, God doesn't have you do that. And and not deal with whatever attitude. You can't pick and choose what attitudes you're going to deal with. And I'm, I'm struggling with maybe trying to go back to serve there, but it's, I don't know. It's something I struggle with. But I guess my main point is, if you want to be involved, serve. Don't just... Don't just give stuff. Don't just give junk. <laughs> if you want to give something, give something valuable. 
we helped set up a woman in the house, and she would, the house wasn't anything fancy, but she was so glad to have her own bed, because it was her and her son. They shared a bed for a long time. So just, you know, be careful with your giving. If you can't serve, be careful with your giving, too. Give good stuff. Give yourself. Uh, Dan Moses, raise your hand. There's a guy who's been involved in our jail ministry. It's, a, it's an under-the-radar, quiet thing that is powerfully effective in this community, and it fits into this discussion. Thank you for your service there and others of you that do that. we got to quit. God, thank you for uh, teaching us from your word about your love and care for the world because everybody in this world is made in your image, and we sometimes forget that. And yet we have, we have to be careful to put our efforts into the right places with the right emphasis. And Lord, may we never lose sight of the core of the gospel, the good news proclamation that uh, God in Christ has paid the price for the eternal ransom of anyone who comes to him. And we renew our commitment to that through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Thank you.